welcome to the More to the Story podcast. This is the very last episode in the series I have been running in the summer of 2023, highlighting the futures of three denominations that I care deeply about. That's the Salvation Army, the Church of Nazarene, and the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church. So today we have the final episode hearing from a voice in the United Methodist Church, particularly from the conservative side. But you're going to have to wait just a second because I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that by serving a host of denominations and independent churches. And we think there are faithful churches all over the world who are looking for pastors, particularly with the emergence of the Global Methodist Church. One exciting thing for Wesley has been that we are in this position where we've been approved by the Global Methodist Church and our course of study has been approved so that in the last six weeks, we have had 150 students accepted into our course of study program, and the number is growing. So we are so excited to serve the Global Methodist Church in addition to the other denominations that we have historically served. So you can check us out at wbs.edu. Secondly, I'm thankful to my friend Bill Roberts for sponsoring this podcast. He is a financial planner who does that from a Christian perspective, and he's particularly good with helping people who do who are like dealing with housing allowances and helping pastors think about the market when that's not something that we normally do. Um, also, I want you to note that I have a study available and a very special offer because our guest last time, I, I randomly threw out an offer when he was on the podcast last time, I decided to put it out there again, my study of the little book of Jude, six video, six sessions that walk small groups and Sunday school classes through those 25 powerful verses. I am offering a uh, 50% off that study for your small group, or your Sunday school class. If you enter the code GMC or UMC. We'll see which one gets the most. Uh, <laughs> may the best denomination win. We'll see. So I'm excited to be able to offer that at this time. All right. Well, it's I'm really glad to invite my friend in, Rob Renfro, Reverend Rob Renfro, who serves as the president of Good News. He's a retired elder from the United Methodist Church. He served in a local church for many years. Rob, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Miller. It's exciting to be here with you. And man, what great news to hear about that course to study and how many are connecting with you guys. I'm so glad y'all are going to be right from the very beginning, putting your DNA into the GMC and helping us be a truly biblical Wesleyan Orthodox church, but with a real heart for people and for service. So I'm thrilled that you're doing that. Oh, it's it's, it's been awesome. They are so hungry. The students who have come in yeah. through the course of study. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll reveal some of my cards as I show this, but we have had students write us who've been in other seminaries course of study program. And right. just in the first week, they've been emotional. They've said, we've never prayed at the beginning of a class before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know that sounds silly to say to some people, but it's like, this is what they've been looking for. And also it's a challenging situation. Our yeah. um, One thing we're doing is that people who go through the course of study can take it and they can then pay an additional fee and to convert that to a master's credit too. So excellent. Very so cool. I'm turning this into a commercial, but uh, I, it, that's worth advertising, man. So it, it, people can become a full elder for $8,000 and they can do it all online and they can become a deacon for $4,000. Um, and they could do that very quickly. Uh, they could do it yeah. in two or two to five years. So wow. Okay. Sorry. I Excellent. can't help that. That's run through my mind all the time. We're really so happy to serve them. So, so Rob, you know, we've had you on the podcast before, but today, yeah. just in case people don't know the format, I've talked to the, 
uh, people in Salvation Army who have two different perspectives of the future of the Salvation Army, a global Methodist church, and now the United Methodist Church, really focusing right. on the United Methodist Church. And last week, I published a podcast with Adam Hamilton, and right. I'm guessing you're going to have a very different perspective than him. But I'm asking you both the exact same questions, and I'm not here to debate you. Rather, right. my point is to pull out as much as I can um, questions just to offer some clarity right. so people can hear those answers. Good. Does that work? Well, I'll begin just by saying that uh, Adam and I see some things very differently, but I have uh, great respect uh, for him. He's been a great leader at his church. He uh, has immense uh, organizational and intellectual uh, capabilities. Uh, he works very, very hard and he's made himself available for the denomination all throughout. So uh, even though we do see some things very differently, he knows that, he admitted it as well as I do. We've been in many conversations uh, together. Um, I don't want to, and I, you're not saying it up this way, I don't want to see it as a debate between Adam and, and me because uh, we're just going to talk about different of opinions and I wish Adam very well. Yeah, and he said something very similar. You would anticipate that too, a very yeah. cordial conversation we had and he recognized that he and I are different and I've tried to keep that at check as best I can through right. these various conversations. Rob, Good. before we get started, do you want to just give us a, a quick uh, who, who is Rob Renfro type of piece? I gave a little introduction to you, but tell us a little about yourself. Well, um, I grew up in a one United Methodist until 1968, and I was born right. in uh, 1955. But I grew up in a Methodist, then a United Methodist uh, church. And if your listeners uh, have seen uh, the Jesus uh, Revolution, yeah. Uh, right at the tail end of that, uh, somebody came to be our summer youth director. It was before okay. we had real youth pastors and, and all year long. And he was a, a part of that movement. And he was the straightest uh, guy you've ever met in your life when he showed up. <laughs> we didn't really, um, we weren't charmed by him. I will tell you that. Okay. And he ended up leading us all to Jesus in that summer. And his name is Eddie Wills. And I'm eternally grateful that my United Methodist Church brought him in. I'm not certainly knew what they were doing, but they brought him in. I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful to him on the impact he's had on my life, my brother's life, and many, many of us. And that's when I really became a, um, you know, a, a conscious follower of Jesus Christ. Right, right. And I'll tell you something, Andy, it's really back at that time, God, I think, put something in my heart. And it's funny that he did. One was, I realized there were other really good people in the United Methodist Church who had never really heard that they needed to accept Christ personally. I think the message that we'd gotten growing up, maybe I just didn't hear it, but I think I'm telling you correctly. It was, let's be good people. God loves us. Jesus is a great example. Uh, maybe they talked about his being our savior, but there was never that yeah, you need to come to Jesus moment. Okay. It's more than yeah. being good people who've been influenced by the teachings of Jesus is having this personal commitment, this uh, born again experience. And so I realized that there were a lot of good people going to church every week that were not hearing that. And I wish I could tell you my call to ministry was some big uh, lightning bolt experience. I always wish I had that, but it was just like, Lord, you got a lot of good folks sitting in Methodist pews and no one's telling them how to accept Christ. And I think I should do that unless you stop me. I, I think that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was kind of my call. So I wanted to tell people about Jesus in particular, people who were coming to church and not hearing it. 
And the other thing, very early on, I just realized even back then. So at that time, I would have been like 17 years old. The United Methodist Church is in trouble. I looked at the pastors who were coming to our church. We had one. And this guy could not find the book of Romans. Mm -hmm. And he certainly couldn't explain it to us when we had a Bible study. And I tell you, this, this would have been, again, in the 70s. This was kind of coming out of the Vietnam War. And even then, a lot of the gospel is social activism and, and fighting against the war, yeah. which is fine. But there, again, was nothing that was rooting us to a real close relationship with Christ. And so back then, I just realized I need to do something to help the United Methodist. I need to tell people how to accept Jesus. Right, right. And God, I think you have something for me to do to help the United Methodist Church. And so I did some things in my conference. And then Dr. Henson, who was at first Methodist, he got me connected with the confessing movement. Has served as a president of that. That's kind of a figurehead position. I'm not demeaning it, but we had an, right. have had an executive director, Pat Miller, who's done a great job running it. And then I became president of uh, Good News, and that's more than a figurehead position. It's a real working position. But my heart has always been in the local church. So I've served a number of different churches. Last church I served uh, was the Woodlands Methodist, just north of uh, Houston was there. This second go around, it was there right when I came out of seminary, but this last time for 21 years wow. and uh, have led you know, 25 different mission trips to Latin America, been to Africa three times and uh, serving God's people, serving a local church, helping people be engaged in uh, serving the poor and the needy, um, coming to real faith in Christ. That's really been my heart. Yeah, that's great. I think that will come through as we you know, work through these questions, the same questions yeah. that I asked Adam as well. And I, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to just put these out there in a way to yeah. demonstrate like you do this out of a love for this tradition that you've yep. been a part of. So um, thanks for setting the stage for that. So my first question is this, if I was a reporter for the BBC and I asked you to explain what is going on in the second largest Protestant denomination in the USA, what would your answer be? I would say back in 1968, the United Methodist Church was formed and even at that time, it was a very diverse group of people, mm -hmm. not so much diverse in terms of ethnicity right. or um, sociological uh, levels or groupings, but theologically. There were some who would describe themselves as very liberal. There would be others who would describe themselves as very conservative. Then there'd be people somewhere in the middle. And... The differences today are about sexuality. Those are the ones that come to the fore. But there have always been these deeper issues, even from the very beginning. And many of us realized that. I mean, as soon as we, I, as soon as I became a pastor, if not before, I realized we were two different tribes. And yeah. so there's some of us who the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, what we use to describe orthodoxy. I'm not going to mention all of them, but things like the Trinity, things like the uh, divinity of Jesus, the fact that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was physically uh, resurrected. No doctrines, uh, we would say, are essential for the Christian faith. Then you have people uh, that are progressive, uh, some of whom say those things are not essential for the faith, and we would even have some progressives in the United Methodist Church, pastors, perhaps bishops, 
who would say they don't fully affirm those things. Right, uh, what's right. really much more important is that the, the church be a place where all people are accepted, where we fight for social justice and to um, kind of make the world a, a better place. And we do it in the name of Jesus. And then there are those in the middle, today we call them centrists, who may in some places come down a little closer to us and other places come down to others. But it became apparent that we are, I, I would describe it as two different tribes. We just have two different views about what God is calling us into the world to uh, do and be. We have two different views about what it means to follow Jesus, two different views about some of the most important theological doctrines. And so some of us have just come to the decision that we would be better by saying, God bless you, and you take off and do what you think God is calling you to do. Let us take off and do what we think God is calling you uh, to do, kind of maybe a you know, Paul and Barnabas uh, moment, and, um, and, and then just be free to pursue our differences. So it's been a difficult road. It, it, this is very late in coming. I can tell you right. 20 years ago, I knew this day would come wow. uh, and we needed to find a way to get there. Um, but so that's what it is. You've got two different tribes theologically, and it's just time to go our separate ways. I saw an expression of that um, recently. I think this statement came uh, several months ago, but a bishop from Iowa said something like, uh, I, I have have the quote there. Um, it isn't important. We agree on Jesus. Yeah. The, uh, she said that when she was running uh, for bishop. And so, you know, it's very important to them that we all agree on a particular sexual ethic, yeah. but it's not important to them that we all agree on who Jesus is. And if she had said, hey, there's a lot of different ways to see Jesus. Some of us see him more as healer. Some of us as redeemer. Some as <laughs> Lord, some as savior. Uh, some is, you know, this faithful friend who gave his life. For, there, there's a lot of different, but there was no nuance there. I mean, just, is it, is it important we all agree on Jesus? No, it's, and that begins to tell you understanding of Jesus um, is not something that we all agree upon. And uh, when you start getting to that level and when you, understand some of the things that seminary professors and pastors talk about Jesus. He's just one of many ways to God. Uh, some United Methodist pastors who are just out, or you've probably seen the recent article saying Jesus did not die for our sins. Right, sure. At that point, uh, this may sound too harsh, but at that point, I'd say it's not we're just different tribes. We may be different faiths. That's right. I, I mean, Christianity is Christ. I mean, it, it's who he is, what he did for us. And if we have really divergent views on him, we may not even have the same the same faith. I mean. It's interesting because this is the third set of conversations I've had. The issue of Christology has come up in each one. And it's yeah. interesting to me. Part of the reason that comes about is there is basically in a, uh, a certain progressive perspectives would suggest that Jesus was simply uninformed or wrong. And so I, this, this real, it, and, and you might think, oh, okay, you're just kind of like, we have different interpretations about right. uh, one or two verses. It's like, no, no, that, that's right. not it. Like, this is a different, a different faith. You know, you're, uh, so one of our bishops wrote a, a post that Jesus, when he dealt with the Syrophoenician woman, uh, that he had to get over his uh, prejudices and his bigotry to see her as a real person and not to treat her according to her ethnicity and her gender. 
So when I, I spoke at a local church who was thinking about disaffiliation, about this very thing, and of course, I, I sometimes tell people, if you don't know about the differences in the United Methodist Church, when I describe to you some of them, I'm going to sound like a crazy person. Right. Because what I'm going to tell you so far out there, I'm going to sound like the guy walking around centuries ago telling everybody, hey, the world's round and you and everybody you know is certain that it's flat. And I'll just sound right. like a nutcase. So I told them this and they had a young man in the church who was at that lunch who was going to Perkins Seminary, the one in, yeah. in Dallas, when most of the folks in our annual conference have gone to. And they said, well, I'd like to hear what I forget his name. I'd like to hear what Jim says about this. He's going to seminary. And he said, actually, a couple of weeks ago, this very thing came up. And many of the students said that Jesus was prejudiced and bigoted. Right, right. And so, you know, they all, the, the folks, even centrist, want to tell you, these are just, you know, Rob's just uh, cherry picking. They're just a few little examples. And yeah, every group has their nutcases. Uh, and it is, that's not who we are. Look, is that who the United Methodist Church is? We can debate that. Is that something that the United Methodist Church allows? Yeah, it allows its pastors, it allows its uh, professors, it allows its bishops to teach that Jesus was bigoted, to say that he didn't die for our sins. Some will say he was not physically uh, resurrected. I mean, it, if you allow it, um, it doesn't matter if that's, quote, you. You've already given in and you have allowed a huge camel's nose to get under your tent, man, and it's going to pull that tent down eventually. Yeah. Well, I, I and obviously, I think that that's a perspective that I, I I agree with you, and so I think we hear that. But that's not the perspective that others others would have. So the a big question, and the second question I have is related to what's going to happen at the next general conference in twenty twenty four or twenty twenty six. Do you yeah. anticipate or do you expect the Book of Discipline to change the definition yeah. of marriage and the standards for ordination? Yeah. Look. Um, yes, I do. I mean, this is what. Um, progressives have been fighting for. This is what centrists uh, have said that we need to uh, adopt. And some people are still under the misimpression. I just read something recently that maybe the language won't change because we'll still have enough delegates from international uh, churches and locales, and there'll be some sure. remaining traditionalists. Uh, and together we'll hold the line one more time. Well, first of all, look, it doesn't matter if we hold the line one more time or, or not. I mean, it doesn't matter if you have rules if nobody enforces them, right? Right, right. And, and we've, we've never said that um, the United Methodist Church is going to change its articles of religion, the great doctrines. Right. We've just said that our bishops are not going to enforce that people have to preach them and, and, and teach them. But on this one, we will not have the votes to hold the line. We, mm. we, we have very good vote counters. Okay. And uh, we've got three or four of them, and they all compete every general conference to see who can get closest to what the actual vote will be. And they almost all get within one or two percent of the actual vote. And they have looked at this very closely, and there is no way that we will hold the line. So this is something they said that they want to do. They need to do all five jurisdictions. 
those are geographical areas, organizational areas within the United Methodist Church in the U.S. All five of them have passed resolutions stating that they want to get rid of the present language in the Book of Discipline. So, yeah, it's a foregone conclusion that it will change. So, so with that, with, with the fact, I mean, and I think, and Adam said that too. I'm not giving anything too much away. Like, yeah, he okay. anticipates it to change. But with that, both on the conservative side and the progressive side, there's a there's some challenges with that. So right. like should tradi traditionalists who have remained United Methodists be allowed at that point to pursue uh, options similar to what's existed now? Like once the thing changed, once it changed, because so many people have been said, well, just hold on. We'll see. It's not going to be that bad. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and before I get there, let me just say, look, I, um, you know, I wouldn't feel good about somebody in a different denomination critiquing the GMC and telling the GMC, here are all your problems, here are all your failures and foibles. Yeah, yeah. I'm still UMC. Okay, uh, and, you are. You are still yeah, United Methodist. I, I'm going to stay in the United Methodist Church until the end of 2024 because I want to go to General Conference. I want to advocate for and partner with our our brothers and sisters, especially in international churches okay. uh, outside of the U.S., so that they can have the same pathway out that we've had. There's, We may get into it, but for some technical reason, I'm not saying there's anything that's been done wrong here, but it's been decided that the pathway that has allowed churches in the U.S. to get out does not apply to them. So I'm staying in to help for that. So I'm still United Methodist. I get that I'm going to leave. I get that people who are United Methodist are not really appreciative that I'm still here, but that's the only reason I can feel good about talking about these issues because I'm That's still helpful. part part of the United uh, Methodist uh, Church. Um, so, yeah, I, I've heard bishops have said this. I've when I have spoken in churches, I've had district superintendents and pastors follow up right behind me and tell the church, you don't need to make any decision. We don't know where this is going. We don't know if there are going to be any changes. Wait and see. But what's happened is and understandably so. Uh, the bishops are tired of this. This has been a very difficult season, not just for traditional churches trying to get out, but for them and for district right. superintendents. So they are really ready. And even I believe it was Bishop Bickerton who at their last uh, council meeting said, all right, let's be done with the D word. Let's get rid of we're, we're done with disaffiliation at the end of this year and let's move forward. But it's like, oh, you can't do that yet. Because you've had people, representatives of the United Methodist Church, telling churches, telling people, don't leave. You don't have to decide now. Let's wait and see if there are any right. changes. Then you can decide. Well, if you've told them that, you are honor bound to keep that word. So, yeah, paragraph 2553 that has allowed churches to leave should either be reinstituted or something very closely uh, to it. Um, that just seems to me to be the honorable, right, just, and, and fair thing. I probably had a but, dozen conversations with people who are in churches that are staying, who are saying, like, well, I'll wait till I see it. Like, they'll wait for that that moment. Well, that's that's just a terrible mistake. I mean, God bless them. They're probably people who believe the same things I do. But, so, uh, yeah. no, man, I if you cannot that's... read the writing on the wall, you know, I, I know it's hard to make these decisions, but... Uh, what we've told people is you're very unlikely to get as good a deal or better a deal than you're getting right now, because General Conference 2024 is going to be more liberal 
than the last general conference we had. Your annual conference that has to vote on letting you out, most yeah. many of the traditionalists will have left. So they're going to be more liberal. So the idea that if you just wait and see <laughs> and that uh, and then when things change, then you're going to say, hey, now we want out. Um, we're going to work because it's fair and just, but uh, it's going to be a challenge. And uh, man, if you can still get out by the end of this year, get out. It, it's um, my mother used to say, none are so blind as they who will not see. And man, you've got to be really blind not to see that the United Methodist Church is changing and it's going to keep changing and it's going to get further and further away from the church that people have known. It's shifting gears a little bit. Do you support a plan to give international churches the same opportunities to disaffiliate that churches in the U.S. have possessed? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I, I really want to believe that even though our bishops and other denominational leaders are ready to be done with this, that they won't even for a second contemplate not offering persons outside of the U.S. the very same pathway out that we have had. Um, sometimes, you know, words get thrown back and forth. One of the words that's thrown at us all the time, because we work closely with people from Africa and the Philippines, that we're colonialists that somehow we're using them or we're buying them off and all that kind of stuff. Um, but man, the definition of colonialist is we've got one set of rules <laughs> that privileges yeah. people in yeah. this country that do not work for those that are poor, that are in uh, developing, underdeveloped uh, countries. So I just have to believe that those who are in charge of the United Methodist Church will want to create a pathway that will allow those churches to leave. And you know, Andy, um, some people who are in the center, they have uh, really crowed about the fact that some of the bishops in Africa have said they reject the WCA right, and they reject right. Africa Initiative, which is the group of African leaders pastors and laypersons that we work most closely with in Africa and, and that they're they're going to remain United Methodist and right. centrists and progressives seem to believe that. So great, make an exit path for the Africans. There won't right. be many going according to your belief. It's not going right. to cost you much. So just give them a fair exit and right. uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, well, I'll encourage people just to look at, uh, compare the answers there with the uh, two different people who have answered that question. So uh, the fourth question, so we'll keep moving here because um, I, I love to get through them all if I can. Well, this, I love to talk, so a, I love to talk, so you keep pushing me forward. Okay, okay I appreciate it. It's easy for me to, want to follow up and just talk, because because that, that last issue, I mean, there's all sorts of ramifications and implications behind that of what it means to be a global church and right. the way that like, regionalization happens in every denomination I've talked to, by the way, Rob, they're yeah. the same thing as tactic is being tried. Oh, there well, I said, I wasn't going to talk about it. And there I talked, <laughs> I keep going. Well, you can call it a regionalization plan. I call it yeah. a segregation plan. Wow. Okay. We're going to send uh, people who don't look like you and me. People do don't have the finances. You and I do people. Many don't have the education. You and I do. We're going to create a set of rules. We're going to set them over here so they can't really impact our church. 
As a matter of fact, Mark Holland, who was president of mainstream UMC after uh, the defeat of 2019, for those who wanted to liberalize our point of views, he wrote an article that was absolutely incredible. And it talked about defunding our work in Africa because why would we want to fund people who don't appreciate or understand our culture? Mm, Not our theology, wow. our culture. Our. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when, when did Christians ever say, Hey, we got to defend our culture. It's no, we're here to transform the culture, to critique the culture. Where we do find good in it, we bless it, and we thank God for His provenient grace. But we're not here to defend American culture. I would think progressives would be very critical of that. But uh, you know, the fact that they are willing to talk about defunding mission work that they've done there because these Africans don't get it. Man, you talk about right. colonial. You, you talk about something that's pretty ugly and pretty nasty. I, I would yeah. hold that up as a shining example of that. You know, I, th this is going to seem maybe like not a good comparison, but as I said at the top of the podcast, the course of study for the GMC as the academic dean is right in the front of my mind. One thing that's been interesting is that a lot of other seminaries have used the words, well, we need to dumb down our curriculum for courses of study. I'm sorry. I like, and and one thing that's been interesting is that the students now. I'm sure there's some who um, right now are turning in papers who wish they didn't have to turn in papers, whatever it is. Uh, there's a way of looking down upon a different a different context. Like, oh, we we need it. We can't give them this now. Of course, we have a different. We understand people are coming with different experiences, and sure. we need to come to each student as best we can. But it, it just reminds me of that. That often, like, where we look down at others when they come in yeah. a different environment. And, and you know what, Rob, I'm probably guilty of that too. I just want to yeah. be fully honest. Like I can do that. Okay. Let me get the next question. This is interesting. This is a real, a real challenge. Okay. How do you see centrists and progressives working together in the future regarding human sexuality? I mean, one of the things that's going to come up is like, rather or not, there's going to be, people will be forced to perform a, a homosexual wedding. Sure. Well, they will probably all tell you that right now, you know, we're going to uh, value everyone's conscience. And uh, so, you know, the plan, as I understand it, would be every pastor would make his or her own decision about whom to marry. So you don't have to marry a gay couple if you don't want to, but you can if you desire. And every annual conference would make its own decision about whether or not to ordain uh, practicing gay persons. Here's, here's the problem. That's not going to last very long without becoming a major bone of uh, contention. Because I truly believe that progressives see what they refer to as full inclusion of gay persons as a justice matter. It's a kingdom matter. It's a matter of love and the ethic of Jesus that we accept all, make room for all. And if you think that the United Methodist Church long-term is going to allow you to practice injustice, in its name, it's not gonna work like that. You know, if right now we had a United Methodist pastor who said, you know, my conscience won't allow me to marry an interracial couple, we'd say, well, God bless you, but get the heck out of our denomination, man. Yeah. Because that, that's bigotry, that's unjust, that's not the spirit of Christ. Maybe you can find some a conservative, crazy denomination that agrees with you, but we're not doing that. 
So go someplace else. If we had a United Methodist pastor who said, I don't feel good about women's ordination. Yeah. And I'm not going to work with women pastors. I said, dude, that, that's, we've, we've decided that a long time ago. It's uh, what we understand the scriptures to teach. And we think that it's something we all have to agree. Well, I'm not going to do it. Well, God bless you. Go yeah. join the Southern Baptist denomination. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do with Rick Warren and all that. But yeah. go join them at least for a while. And you won't have to work with female pastors, but you cannot be a United Methodist pastor and not feel good about working with female pastors. So if you think that long-term progressives are going to say, yeah, we've got uh, pastors who are not going to do what we think is just and fair and kingdom work, I don't think it's going to last. And so what I predict is that the progressives want to speed up the process where persons are required to perform gay marriages and every annual conference is required to ordain practicing gay persons. And the centrists uh, are more likely to get there a little slower because they've promised, hey, things aren't going to change real big. They're not going to go crazy. If you want a conservative pastor, you can always get one. We're never going to force you to do anything you don't want to do. Um, and so I think they're going to have that tension. And then, Andy, further along, and again, this is where I start sounding like a crazy person. This is not going to be the last uh, sexual ethics question that the United Methodist Church will have to deal with. Because we've already had United Methodist uh, pastors. Uh, we've had one bishop who in a private conversation, they've begun to talk about there are various forms of marriage within the a faithful marriage, including polygamy. Uh, and as polyamory becomes more and more a part of our culture, uh, when you worship the altar of inclusivity and diversity, what do you say no to? I mean, you can't say the story of Adam and Eve teaches two persons because you've already said it doesn't teach a man and a, and a woman. Uh, you've already decided love is love, period. So what about the love between more than two people? Well, if they're committed, they're loving, they're a family, don't we let people define family for themselves uh, it, these days? So what I have never seen is where the centrists have enough theological backbone to say no to the progressives. Not on, not on essential Christian matters, not just sexuality, but as they teach these things. I mean, they've never written about the bishops who said Jesus was bigoted and prejudiced, okay? They've never written about seminary professors saying that Jesus is just one of many different ways uh, to God. So where are they going to say no to? Um, and, and so I expect that the the sexual ethic of the United Methodist Church is going to be pressured to become more and more liberal mm -hmm. and uh, 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 centrists who have become the new conservatives will find themselves in a very uncomfortable position. Either they're going to have to go through this whole battle again, just the goalpost has been moved a little bit, or they're going to have to uh, give in. And so folks, uh, centrist leaders, I think, are going to find themselves uh, the little Dutch boy with their finger in the dike. And yeah. there's going to be this progressive wave. Man, I have worked, I've been in meetings with some of these uh, younger progressives. They have no problem telling me to quit speaking. You've already spoken enough. I was responding to somebody's wow. question. Wow. You have enjoyed your privilege enough. You, you let someone else speak. Okay, wow. we'll do. So they have no problem saying they know what's right. 
they have no problem calling you down. And this, this, these fellows are going to be having their little finger in the dike, and this progressive flood is going to come. And I think the whole thing's going to break loose. Well, I don't take pleasure in that. Might... But I think that's what's going to happen. Mm. Centrists might say, and maybe even progressives, well, Rob, you know, that's a that's pushing it a little far. Don't you? I mean, who who wants to be married by a pastor who doesn't think they can be married? Like they, they can't force anybody to do that, can they? Well, nobody is going to uh, force you to marry folks. They're going to force you out of the United Methodist Church. Okay, that's going to be the issue, huh? Yeah, it's like, dude, no, this is who we are. This is what we do. If you're not one of us, you need to go find some place where you can be um, more at home. Just like if you're not going to marry a black person and a white person, we'd say, okay, time for you to leave the denomination. We're not going to make you force that couple, uh, force you to marry that couple. We're just going to say you can't stay. You find this interesting. I, I'm sorry to keep referring back. You, you're the sixth interview I've done in this format. But if you go back to the Nazarene conversation, you'll see where um, while that the, the progressive voice there thought things he thought in general should be restricted to a monogamous couple. He did say he thought that their their book of discipline, their manual should have an openness for polygamy in other countries. Like he thought that that would be. An, so I just want to say like and, and, and I have been accused of the logical fallacy of the slippery slope for saying this. But my my point is this, we're already there. Like I'm not I'm not saying something is going to happen. Right. I'm saying something is happening like this. This is a reality. Look, it, the the hardest thing to do, maybe, is to get people to see something they don't want to see. And and all these churches that have stayed because we're just going to wait and see if the United Methodist Church is going to change. I, I don't know what's in their hearts, but I can tell you some of them are doing that because they don't want to do hard things right now. Yeah. And if they acknowledge that the United Methodist Church has become something that they cannot be comfortable with. They've got to do difficult things right now. Nobody likes doing difficult things. Nobody likes right. doing it right now if you can put it off later. Yeah. And so people want to say it's not going to get that bad. But we already have pastors who've talked about this new United Methodist Church. It's going to embrace everyone. It's going to embrace uh, straight, gay queer, bi, polyamorous, um, Miss Pentecost, real name Isaac Simmons, uh, he posted on Facebook that his project at seminary now is to uh, create uh, resources, a curriculum, I believe, for polyamorous couples in churches that don't accept uh, polyamorism. Wow. And so this isn't just something I've come up with to scare people. I, this is presently happening. You'll, you'll say, well, that's crazy. It'll never happen. Well, 40 years ago, nobody thought we'd be marrying gay people. I'm right. not talking about the rightness or the wrongness of it. I'm just saying it was beyond comprehension. Right, right. And so let me just ask you, when have you ever seen progressives say, OK, there and no farther? Yeah. OK, we're going to go right here. But the next thing, oh, that's a little too crazy for us. I mean, they. I, I probably am yeah. being judgmental, but I've never seen them say, okay, we can't go that. There's always a group pushing, pushing. Yeah. And... How about we be more conservative? Let's try that. <laughs> no. And I want to yeah. say a Miss Pentecost is, uh, you said she's a seminary student. I just want to confirm that seminary project was not for Wesley Biblical Seminary. Just to be clear, just to be clear. <laughs> no, that's All a right. relief. Now I know Rob, this has been a hard time. Like it's right. a hard time for and some people say it's a great time, but yeah. it, it, no, it, 
I think everybody should say this has been a sad time yeah. to a certain degree for, for United Methodist. That having been said, do you see any benefits of disaffiliation for those who remain United Methodist or for the denomination as a whole? Is there anything a benefit? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, on an emotional level, look, I, I know how some people pastors, some lay people in the United Methodist Church see people like me and other traditional leaders. I know how they feel about me because I've had people hiss at me. I've had people call me names. This is at my own annual yes, you conference. Have. You know, I and so I know for some of them, it's not pleasant being around people like me. Okay. I, I get that. I'm glad my mother's dead because she wouldn't understand how anybody could not love her baby boy. So <laughs> Uh, so there'll be, there, there's freedom. Our annual conference just met, the, the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. And the report was there was a really good spirit and they were glad to have the past behind them and be able to dream and think about the future. So emotionally, they're going to be released from having to be around people like me. And uh, you know how it is, just when you're around folks that, you know, or you think don't like you, don't trust you, don't believe, it's just unpleasant. So there'll be an emotional benefit to them. Now, this one may sound a little snarky, but I think the other benefit that I see is that they will have to, they will have the opportunity to address why the United Methodist Church has not been growing. Mm. Um, we may talk about this later. I may preempt yeah. a question that you have later on. But the United Methodist Church was formed in 1968. It's never had a year where it grew. Wow. It's not just that it went down five years and then it came up, but didn't come up to where it was before. It's gone down every year in terms of membership and, and, and in worship attendance. Mm -hmm. Um. And, and one of the thoughts is, well, you know, we don't grow because we have these mean-spirited conservatives and they give our denomination this bad name. And uh, once we become open and once we uh, become a church that, that truly has open hearts and open minds and open doors, people are going to come in, they're going to experience the love and grace of God, and we're really going to grow. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen. Um, and so when that happens, it will give persons in the United Methodist Church, a really good opportunity to say, why are we not growing? And I can promise you that United Methodist churches are not going to grow just because they start marrying gay folks and they have gay pastors. Right. You're not going to get secular people, non-believers, non-church people to start getting up early on their Sunday morning, come to your church and sing songs that they don't understand give 10% of their income to your church budget and start following Jesus because you've liberalized your sexual ethic. That's not what's keeping them from being faithful followers of Jesus or be attracted uh, to the gospel. Mm. So the United Methodist Church is not going to grow. Um, I can give you, and again, Annie, I feel like I'm getting another question, but all the statistics for every other uh, denomination that's made this change are dire. The, the UCC, these are mainline Protestant churches, the, the UCC, since it made this change, has seen um, a 30% decline in, in membership. 
um, the, the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, has seen a 20 percent uh, decline in membership. And, you know, we're going to reach young people by being more open. During the same period, their youth professions of faith have dropped 50 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, one of their church growth experts has written by 2041 that they will have 16,000 people in worship throughout the entire denomination. This was a denomination that, you know, probably uh, 30, 40 years ago had 3 million people. And then there is a Episcopal uh, church, um, church growth expert. His last name is Jaila. Z-S-C-H-E-I-L-E or something close to that. And uh, the the Episcopal News Service reported that he said by 2050, we won't have anyone in Mm. worship. So the declines have been dramatic even after they've made these changes. So my sense is when they don't grow in the future and they won't, they do have an opportunity to say why. It's not the conservatives' fault anymore. What are we doing wrong? Hmm. We've been doing something a certain way all these years. It's never worked. We've had certain kinds of people leading us all these years. It's never worked. That will be their chance to have some genuine self-reflection and say, we need to make some changes. I pray for the sake of the kingdom of God that will happen. Well, it'd be interesting. I'll just reveal a little bit here since it's coming after um, Adam Hamilton's answer. Like He agrees with you that the the move on sexuality won't be a cause, a trigger for growth for them, but he just thinks they'll have a be more, more commonality and his church has grown. So he, they have an effective organization and they're operating. So he, that's why he thinks that they'll just be maybe more churches being like his. Um, well, that- uh, not everybody is Adam Hamilton. Um, you know, it, it's possible that uh, his growth has something to do with his organizational brilliance his incredible work ethic, his winsome, if not charming personality. You you put anybody in a pulpit in charge of a church like that, you're very likely to see growth. Um, But how many Adam Hamiltons do we have in the United Methodist Church? Not many. Uh, and, And is it really that these churches have been declining years and years and years, but they didn't have access to Adam's methodology. They didn't have access to his books. They didn't have access to his teaching. No, they've had it all along. What's been preventing them from um, growing their churches has nothing to do with let's get rid of the uh, uh, traditionalist. And all of a sudden, we're all going to become little Adam Hamilton's building kingdoms, not as large as his, but, you know, impressive. Not going to happen. I hope I, I I hope I represented his what he said to that well and and you know to be fair I didn't get a chance to bring your questions to him I I have you a little bit later on the same day though this is coming out a couple of weeks later so this might be a helpful question then because you're going to be in I'm at the church for another year and this is at least so this is yeah. a interesting thing what what is um what's the biggest challenge for the UMC then going yeah. forward I would say. Um... Some of the things that we've talked about, Um, let's be honest and say that we are not in a culture any longer where it's easy to grow churches. Okay, Um, I think uh, I saw something recently, seven or eight Protestant denominations, if you include Assembly of Gods as Protestant, 
have to, I mean, we can debate. So this is a little bit bigger than mainstream, but none of them have grown over like the past 40 years, except assembly of God. Right. Okay. So we, we don't have the cultural winds blowing in our direction. So I want to be honest and say, it's going to be difficult numerically for all of us. Um, but that's, we've got to recapture a, a heart for evangelism. We've got to recapture a heart for serving in the name of Christ. Uh, I can go through a whole spiel about how this little group of Jesus followers had no political uh, influence, um, who were not known for being educated, except changed the world. And it's because they lived and served and loved the way that Jesus did yeah. uh, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit. But growth will be um, a huge problem for them. They're going to become a denomination. Maybe others, maybe the GMC will have to fight this too, with silos, with large churches like Adams. Yeah. Um, but then with many others that are just barely hanging on. And especially after some of the churches that have stayed when traditionalists have left and gone off and started churches because they didn't get to 67%, right. you're going to find many churches having to band together and have pastors with two or three point charges and may not really have the resources to do much other than just kind of take care of themselves. So numerical growth will be one. Um, financial stability will be another. So we have this group in the United Methodist Church that sets the uh, proposes the budget for the entire denomination. It's called the GCFA, General Council on Finance and Administration. They have just proposed a budget for the next quadrennium that is 40, 40% less than the quadrennium beforehand. At my own Texas annual conference that just met, uh, the budget was cut by about 40 to 45 uh, percent. So their finances are going to become very difficult. And in a top heavy church, the way the United Methodist Church has been, where you've paid a lot of bishops, you've paid them well. I don't begrudge them that. Uh, but where you paid a lot of bishops, paid them well, where you have large boards and agencies with huge staffs, uh, offices and magnificent uh, buildings. Uh, they're going to have a very difficult time doing business the way that they've uh, always done it. And then, you know, the other challenge is going to be uh, what we talked about earlier, how the differences between the centrist and the progressives regarding sexual sexuality, uh, sexual ethics, how that's going to get worked out. And I, I predict either the centrist will capitulate or this will be another big battle. And I'm I'm more convinced that the centrist will capitulate, but I think there'll be have to be some fighting before they get to that point. Interesting. Wow. Well, you you brought up something that was interesting, and there's another question about this. So I'll just go ahead to it about the boards and agencies. So these are the yeah. groups for those who are not familiar with Methodism that there have been uh, boards that have been established to serve the church or represent the church at the national or international level. And it's often been these groups that have taken on causes that don't generally represent the right. local church, like supporting abortion right. and uh, some other socialist type of causes in some countries. And um, I could go on, but I yeah. mean, you just said these groups, like one of them has an office right next to the um, Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. I mean, yeah. so it's like some really nice property. What's <laughs> going to happen? What's the future of these boards and agencies? Well, they're obviously they're going to have to be trimmed back. 
And um, that's going to be something that I won't be a part of, but that they're going to have to address. And what we've seen, even in the past, when there were attempts to trim them back, some were more open to this and they said, yeah, we see finances are getting tight. We'll tighten our belts. There were others who really pushed back and said, no, the work we're doing is so essential. You can't, um, you, you can't take funding from us. We're not going to make these cuts. Um, but, you know, what should happen, I think, is most local churches find very little benefit from any of these boards and agencies. As a matter of fact, I will tell you, 2016 at General Conference, uh, we were in, and I'm not going to give away names, but we were in negotiations with progressive and centrist leaders. And uh, one of the centrist leaders who's now been elected to be a bishop, uh, we were all talking about the boards and agencies are a problem. And this person said, yeah, I know. Um, I've called the Board of Church and Society. That's the one that you're talking about with the, uh, uh, you know, that's right there near the Supreme Court. Uh, I've called Board of Church and Society and just said, please, can you quit issuing statements? Every time you issue a statement, I lose three tithers from my church and I'm trying to pay your salary. Wow. So not only do churches not get a lot of benefit, they feel like sometimes they're being sabotaged. Now, that may change when the church is fully much more uh, progressive. Uh, but I would say, let's figure out which of these really serve the local church. Right, and the ones right. that don't, if there's still a mission for them, rather than everyone having their own kingdom, let's just throw them in all together. Let's put one person in charge of them, kind of lower, not have what we call general secretaries over all of them. Let one general secretary do all of them, lower the amount of staffing and the kind of the level of staffing when it comes to pay and, and um, you know, augmented uh, salaries and uh, just drop that thing way down. And you know what? I don't think anybody will notice. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't yeah. think anybody will feel like the kingdom has suffered a great loss. So, so that they, they could have a future, but it's going to be very different from how they operate right now. Yeah. You know, what we have suggested once is just let them be on a, um, kind of a, a fee for work. It, look, mm -hmm. if you produce something that benefits the local church, yeah, put it out there and let the church pay you for it. Let's don't yeah. have apportionments, but th that would make these boards and agencies much more responsive rather than thinking, you know, all the money's coming in. We don't have to care about what the local church uh, might want or think. Um, we'll just do what we think is right. Um, and, and because, man, those apportionments, you know, uh, but make it where it's like, no, you've got to do something that somebody says, hey, that's important enough to this congregation that we want to pay you for it. But I'm feel pretty certain. Yeah, I, this gets into the issues of like, what's the overhead and what's the what's the kind of big group that's united us? And the Salvation Army had this challenge of, uh, two years ago where there was a group and it seems like the same type of thing happens in the Salvation Army. There's more yeah. and more administration and more and more offices. So an right. office was created that sounded good 20 years yeah. ago, International Social right. Justice Commission. Well, yeah. that then became a group that was separated out. There weren't people connected to necessarily to the church that was the Salvation Army Church. And then all of a sudden they issue something that looks very similar to critical race theory, supporting Black Lives Matter. And the same sure. thing happened that you're saying like even people who might be supportive of those ideas 
it the American public was not happy with the yeah. fact that all of a sudden that came out. But why did that happen? Because it wasn't accountable to the local unit. Like the local, right. like if you have a good product that we can use, let's do it. And that, yeah. I think that's a a good and, and and that should be kept in mind for any of the denominations that are yeah. being birthed, like the GMC, yep. but also any denominations like the the Congregational Methodist Church is growing right now. AIM uh -huh. is Association of Independent Methodists is growing now. Keep these good. things in mind. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So my last question, I, I have to skip one because we're running out of time. What type of pastors do you think will be attracted and want to serve or, or should be attracted to serve in the future UMC? Well, I would say two kinds. Um, and one is not all that different than what it is now. And that is good people who want to help others. Okay. I think you have a lot of people who enter the ministry, especially churches like the United Methodist Church, because they uh, experienced grace and kindness in their local church or in their Wesley Foundation. And it was like, oh, the church was there for me when I was hurting or I was confused. And I want to I want to do that for others. Yeah. So good people who want to do good things in the lives of others. I think they're attracted to the United Methodist Church. I think there will be social justice warriors. I, that is a pejorative term. I don't mean it quite that way. But people who really see that, you know, the goal is to change the world, to make it uh, uh, more socially just. And uh, the church and theology can provide a helpful um jumping off place or platform uh, for doing that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's who in the future, and, and there may be people who really want to bring people to genuine faith in Christ that will. But I can tell you who's not going to be mm -hmm. interested in joining in our Methodist Church, and that is thoroughly Orthodox Wesleyan uh, people of, of all ages, not just young people. Right. Uh, but middle-aged people, um, uh, certainly not Hispanic people, they, they are all going uh, GMC. Certainly not Asian people, they're all going uh, GMC. Um, and th there's no reason why a, a young Orthodox Wesleyan would go to the United Methodist Church because he knows he's going to feel very uncomfortable with its uh, sexual ethic. He's going to wonder whether he or she is ever going to have to perform services, to, yeah. uh, marriage services uh, to remain. And he or she's going to know they're going to be in the vast minority. And in the same way, I said, I know my presence makes it uncomfortable for certain people. It's also uncomfortable for us. Uh, to be in a room where you're in the cognitive minority, you know, you're looked down upon and the things that you hold are dear are scoffed at uh, and mocked. And the bigger issue there, Andy, is that these churches that have been told you'll always have a traditional pastor, th this is a big tent. Right, right. And every, every view is going to be respected. And you're never going to have a, a progressive pastor if you're a conservative church. You'll never have a gay pastor if you want a straight pastor, etc. There's going to come a time when there are no traditional pastors to appoint right. to traditional churches. Because three things. One, most of us are getting out. Secondly, those that are staying, many of them are staying because they're towards the end of their ministry. 
And it's like, man, you know, I like my church. They like me. We're more mixed in theology, but we're making it work. And if I leave my church and I go, I've got three or four years, I've got to find a new church. And that's really, is that enough time to really do good work together? So those that aren't getting out are going to tend to be older. They're going to retire. And then you're not going to be replenishing the well by bringing in younger uh, evangelical traditional pastors. Mm -hmm. So there will come a time when there's simply nobody to appoint except someone who has, in my viewpoint, a compromised sexual ethic and maybe compromised beliefs on the essentials of the Christian uh, faith. So I would say it's your question is a good one. Who will be attracted in the future? Uh, the other question is, what will be the results for churches who think they can stay? Yeah. And it, it, even if these pastors and district superintendents actually mean it when yeah. they say, um, you know, uh, we'll always provide the kind of person you want. That's just short-sighted. They're not yeah. going to be there. Where are they going to get them? I mean, so in yeah. 15, 20 years, will the United Methodist Church still be a big tent church? <laughs> well, uh, they will say they are, but they're going to appeal to a um, to a particular slice of people. Yeah. So are you a big tent church? If you say everybody's welcome, then yeah, they're going to say everybody's welcome. Are you a big tent church if you only have uh, people with one view of uh, sexuality, if you only have people who believe that the central truths of the Christian faith are not really worth fighting for, even if they hold to them, you're, you're not going to have that church. Yeah. And and if I can finish up with this, I, I just yeah. recently had a conversation with a, uh, I'll just say a, a Methodist leader. And um, the question really was, why are you staying? You know, you think the Methodist Church is so bad, why are you staying? And I was yeah. really open. I'm here to help folks get out. I get the irony. I'm staying in to help others get out. But that's that's the real truth. And I don't mind telling the truth, even if it uh, maybe doesn't look uh, good uh, right away. And this person said, I want to be a part of church that welcomes everybody. I want, and then this person listed gay, straight, broken, whole, uh, black, white, six, et cetera. And I said, I want that same church. Everybody wants that church. We accept all people. The difference is we don't want every doctrine at our table. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, If that sounds harsh, I'm sorry it sounds harsh. But I don't want uh, theologies that are so diverse within the, the denomination that I'm a part of that it's acceptable to doubt the divinity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the fact that he died on the cross to save us uh, from our sins. Uh, I I don't want to be in that kind of church because I think it undermines faith. I think it leads people away from the gospel. But that will be the future, I think, United Methodist Church, people who define um, diversity in such a way that it makes room for every different kind of belief. Mm-hmm. rather than saying we want all kinds of people, but we are committed to the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And if you don't believe those and you want to come to our churches, you're very welcome. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to be a pastor, you want to be a seminary professor, you want to be a district superintendent, a bishop, no, you've got to be, you, there's, there's room to play around in the Orthodox faith. 
you, you've heard the example, it's like a, a baseball field. There can be a right field, a center field, and a left field, but there are foul lines. And what I have found is that the United Methodist Church doesn't have foul lines. You can be, you can be up in the <laughs> the stands, you know, in the mezzanine section, and you're still yeah. active, like you're right on the field doing fine. Yeah, and so like that to take the analogy probably to the ridiculous level. If you're playing first base, not looking to the outfield and not realizing people are running past the lines, we hope that you'll see like what we're saying here and what Rob's saying, and just wake up to what it is now. And I and also I'll just close this out here, and Rob, I'll give you a chance to say one more thing in just a second, just to close out. But um, I, as we're finishing this series, my goal has not been to divide people further, but more or less to give people an opportunity to hear a clear presentation. I think we've had that. And so and my appreciation to you, Rob, for coming on. I haven't sensed like a anger that you have. Um, I imagine there has been anger, as, uh, but it hasn't, in my view, during this interview led to sin. And so like, I think it's okay <laughs> for us to be in that Good. position. And these are things, institutions we love. And certainly like we're all in places where we're trying yeah. to evaluate that. But I mean, yeah. if we didn't have the opportunity because we have the nature of these questions, we didn't have the moment where we said, this is what we're excited about. But you can go back to my, my last conversation with Rob and hear where he talks about what he's excited about with what's coming in the next version of Methodism. Anything else you want to say, Rob? I, you know, the last thing to say is I'm uh, very grateful for the United Methodist Church. Like I said, I I found Christ or Christ found me, however you want to describe that in the United Methodist Church. Uh, I've had great friends. I've been given great opportunities. Um, I was uh, discipled in the United Methodist Church. So um, I'm, I'm leaving. Okay, and um, I, it, it, it is sad um, that it's come to this, but I want to say I'm grateful for everything I was given through the United Methodist Church. I want to say that I pray for the United Methodist Church, that it will be faithful to uh, the gospel and to God's desire to welcome all and to preach the truth, to contend for the faith, and to make this world a better place in the name of Jesus. And I would really appreciate United Methodists praying the same thing for Global Methodists. Amen. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Rob. I appreciate it. Thank you, Andy.